Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast. And today I have a very special treat. I have two very special guests from the Family Advocacy Program. Pam Collins, who is the Clinical Director of the Air Force Family Advocacy Program, Air Force Medical Readiness Agency, and Deidre Saina, who is responsible for overseeing, managing, and directing domestic abuse victim advocacy services at Air Force bases around the world. Welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to participate in this interview. Thank you for having us. Thank you. All right, let's start. Pam and Deidre, what are your roles? Tell us about what you do. This is Pam. I'm a social worker and I'm the clinical director for family advocacy. So I oversee the social workers that work in our 73 installations across the world. I'm in charge of training them, basic skills training, as well as advanced training. And I also have a role in the development of Air Force policy on how we respond to domestic abuse and child maltreatment. So primarily, I'm their consultant. I help them interpret those policies that we write. And so I spend most of my days talking on the phone or on email with the folks at the different installations who are serving our families. Thank you, Pam. And Deidre? Well, thank you, ma'am. And I can tell you how she can respond is because I'm her backup majority of the time. I'm a social worker as well, a clinical social worker, and I have been in the field for almost 18 years, and I started as a victim advocate in the Army Family Advocacy Program as a victim advocate, and then became a prevention outreach educator for the Army, and then was offered a position to help stand up our Air Force Family Advocacy Domestic Abuse Victim Advocate Program back in 2011. And so I helped Pam, as well as our Air Force FAP chief, to stand up our Domestic Abuse Victim Advocate Program, aka DABA. And I've been able to provide subject matter expert consultation, policy recommendations, lots of training related to anything in regards to domestic abuse, victim advocacy, crisis intervention to advocates, social workers, nurses, and leadership across the Air Force. Awesome. Thank you both so much. And thank you for everything you do. Tell us about the Family Advocacy Program. Why was it created? What services it provides? And who qualifies for this program? Well, I'm taking you way back now, Anya. This goes back to like 1974 when the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act came about. And it created the development of the child advocacy program, both in the Air Force and the Army and the Navy and the Marines. 
um, and also the Office of Family Policy up at the DOD level. And so they were just responding back then to child maltreatment allegations. But in the early 80s, which is around the time that I joined the program, Congress discovered spouse abuse was occurring in military families, and they needed an organization in the military to respond to that as well. And so they added it to the scope of the child advocacy program, and they changed the name to the family advocacy program. In about 99, 2000, there was a big kind of wave of media asking military, what are you guys doing to support victims of domestic violence? And the National Defense Authorization Act of FY 2000 enacted the Defense Task Force on Domestic Violence. And the mission of that task force was to investigate domestic abuse within military communities, the system's response. The task force was mandated to make policy and program recommendations to make some changes. And so the task force made almost 200 recommendations The one recommendation that's near and dear to my heart, obviously, is the recommendation to stand up a 24-7 victim advocacy program across the services. And so in 2006, which I actually started my victim advocacy career in the military in 2005. So right after that, there was a mandate. DOD required the services to ensure that domestic abuse victim advocates were hired across the military to respond telephonically or in person 24-7 to adult victims of domestic violence. And also there was the restricted reporting requirement, the policy that was also put out by our Department of Defense, OSD Family Advocacy, to ensure that we were providing victims with options for reporting abuse in the military services. And that's how we started as victim advocates. And currently, who qualifies for a family advocacy program? Who does it serve in this population? Well, currently, we serve active duty families and activated guard and reservist families. Basically, if you and your family members are eligible for care in a military medical treatment facility, then you're eligible for the full range of benefits from family advocacy. If you're potentially an unmarried intimate partner of a service member, you have more limited services, but we would certainly respond with safety planning and support education and then a warm handoff to the resources outside the gate that you would qualify for. When we talk about services that you provide, you provided to, you said, active duty members and activated guard and reservists. And their dependents, correct? Yes. Everyone who's eligible for care in the hospital on base. Okay. And what about the types of domestic abuse? Can you tell us what kinds of things would bring them to the family advocacy services? A lot of times in the family advocacy program, we get cases where, you know, we get security forces or law enforcement on base or off base contacting us in regards to a domestic abuse incident that they have responded to, whether it's physical, emotional, or sexual. Either it's law enforcement contacting the family advocacy program, 
or command or first sergeant, you know, the command team contacting family advocacy saying, hey, I need some help right now. I have an individual in my unit who's dealing with something right now. And I always tell our victim advocates, our DAVAs, our domestic abuse victim advocates, that if they have a really good relationship with command team, that's what's going to happen a lot of times. Your first sergeants and your commanders are going to be contacting you saying, help, help. And that's exactly what we're here for, to be consultants and to say, let me help you guys as far as helping you support your members and their family members. And then a lot of times we get calls from victims or potential victims themselves, right? Or they come into the family advocacy program. The types of abuse that they come in for ranges, obviously, from physical abuse. You know, we always look at this on a spectrum, a domestic abuse spectrum, domestic abuse slash domestic violence spectrum. So a little bit on the left side of the spectrum is for physical abuse can be aggression, physical aggression, and different types of acts like pulling hair, shoving, pushing, slapping. As I keep going, it's going up the spectrum, right? So strangling, biting. We've had lots of incidents where we've got clients in cars with their abusers where they're trying to recklessly ram their cars to cause some type of injury, which is also a type of physical abuse. So that's our physical abuse spectrum. And then emotional abuse, where we have humiliation, abusers degrading their victims, self-esteem issues with victims where they're calling their partners names and isolating them from family and friends. That happens a lot with our military families, especially when they relocate to other parts of the country or the world. And they don't have any family or support system around them. And so they are only relying on their active duty member partner or the active duty member is only relying on their civilian partner or active duty partner. Threatening to hurt victim, the children. We get a lot of our abusers who are male or female and they are using the children against that partner. You know, if you don't do this, that, or the other, I'm going to take your children, or I'm going to take our children, or you're not going to ever see your children again. Gaslighting is a huge issue where it's kind of psychological manipulation where an abuser is trying to manipulate the situation to make that victim and everyone around that victim feel as though that there's something wrong with that person. Then there are sexual abuse and coercion, and that's also another form of abuse where we see a lot of our clients who report manipulation tactics in regards to sexual abuse. Sexual assault and sexual abuse is a type of behavior, abuse behavior that definitely crosses over into the criminal spectrum in regards to sexual assault. And so we have to ask specific questions about rape, about sexual assault. A lot of our clients are dealing with things like sexual abuse and manipulation tactics. If you don't perform these types of acts, 
I'm going to end up having an affair on you, or I'm going to do something to where you need to do this to me, or I'm going to check out of our relationship. More of a manipulation issue in regards to sexual abuse and coercion. Now, the the actual sexual abuse, sexual assault definitely deals with acts of aggression and violence. And that is part of forcing someone to have sex, using weapons, using objects during sex and whatnot. And those are things that we deal with. Also, you know, we, of course, take reports for child maltreatment and we investigate, well, we assess and Child Protective Services investigates those allegations as well. And our DAVIS can support the non-offending parents in those child maltreatment allegations as well. And I just wanted to foot stomp that, you know, it's not always just about military beneficiaries. Many times our active duty members are engaged in relationships, in intimate relationships with civilians that have no military benefits, but we still provide support, education, safety planning, and we connect them to the resources off base. And we've been doing that since like 2006. That's a very important distinction because an intimate partner is not going to have the same benefits as a spouse, for instance, or a child of an active duty member in the military treatment facility and family advocacy program will provide safety for them and will provide resources and services. Is that true? Absolutely, we will. Yes. And this year, another milestone is that domestic violence became an offense under the UCMJ, which is good because when we're looking at our databases and we're trying to compare with the legal and with OSI, which cases we are sharing, if it does not say that the assault was a domestic violence assault, then it's hard for us to tease that out and know which cases that we're sharing together in the data when we're looking at our data and which ones are a different kind of assault, not a domestic assault. Who would be considered an intimate partner? I think that you and I, clinicians, use this term and we understand when we speak with one another, but for somebody who's not familiar with this terminology, how would they know who is an intimate partner? Obviously, your spouse is your intimate partner, but if you're not married, it would be a former spouse, a person with whom you have lived with, you live with now, or you've lived with in the past, or somebody that perhaps you share a child with. The Air Force back in 2015 kind of leaned forward and we expanded our intimate partner definition to include dating partners because we were getting referrals on some pretty dangerous situations and felt like those victims were at risk. And now DOD is following suit. And this year they'll be publishing an updated instruction that will include dating partners in their intimate partner definition. So we felt like that was a win. Very good. And I wanted to come back to an earlier conversation and to recap the types of domestic abuse. And Deidre, you talked about domestic abuse being on the continuum from harsh and extreme physical and lethal sometimes. And that fluctuates kind of down from physical to verbal and emotional, and then sexual falls somewhere in that continuum as well. Am I capturing that accurately? Absolutely. It is a spectrum of abuse and violence that, you know, and in the family advocacy program, we try to catch folks on the ends of the spectrum where we can actually prevent further violence and abuse from happening. So it is a spectrum. And a lot of times, it occurs from starting at some of the less severe types of acts 
whether it's physical, the shoving, the pushing, those types of things, sexual abuse, the manipulation, the I'm going to cheat on you kind of thing where it feels, you know, very manipulative and the emotional aspect as well to the more extreme on the other side of the spectrum, which is the violence. And it can cross over into a criminal allegation where that's what we try to do in family advocacy is to prevent that from happening and providing our families with some tools to prevent that, whether it's the individual initial victim that comes through, the entire family, to include the alleged offender, as well as the children. When we talk about partners who stay in domestic abuse, they can show up on your radar and you can try to help them. And oftentimes you educate them or you try to provide them safety, you know, treat the perpetrators. Yet the victims of domestic violence oftentimes stay in abusive relationships. And correct me if I'm wrong, maybe this number is now outdated. But from what I heard or read, a victim leaves on average seven times before she leaves an abusive or he leaves an abusive relationship. Why is that victims of domestic violence do not leave? That's a great question, ma'am. And that's a question we get asked often. And, you know, a lot of times our family advocacy program, they do an activity with a lot of our commanders and our leaders and other stakeholders. And it's called In Their Shoe. It used to be called In Her Shoe, but it's called In Their Shoe now because we know that male victims are also at risk for not leaving relationships. And there's lots of reasons why that they don't leave relationships. They choose to stay in situations. First of all, we always say that the clients that we work with, they do not want their relationships to end. That is a given. A lot of them do not want their relationships to end. They want the abuse to end. A lot of times our victims stay for various reasons. They stay because they are lacking resources, financial, healthcare, housing. Sometimes they just don't have any place to go. They don't have a shelter. Maybe they have animals. They have teenage children to include teenage boys. And a lot of our shelters in the community do not allow teenage boys to be in those shelters. It's a battered women's shelter. A majority of shelters do not allow animals. And we know that animals are very close. They're our family. So they have to put them in kennels or leave them at the house where it's with an abuser who is manipulating the situation where it's causing the animals to be at risk as well. A lot of times victims don't want to leave the relationship because they feel like the abuser is going to change at some point. They know that they started this relationship with their partner, not an abuser. It's not, they, they don't see them as an abuser when they started the relationship, right? Like it's actually their person that they started a relationship with. And they remember that when they're going through all of these abusive situations, they remember who their partner was when they first started the relationship. And they want to get back to that part. And also, In the military, sometimes the abusive person has a high rank, has high status, a highly decorated individual. And even victims who do have resources, who are potentially an officer themselves, 
they don't have a frame of reference for the abuse. They didn't grow up in an abusive household and they may not even realize what's happening to them is abusive or they may fear that no one will believe them that this wonderful person that they're married to that's had such accomplishments in their lives could actually be abusive. The other thing is that they're in a relationship with somebody who has tried to isolate them from friends and family. And so they often feel like they don't have anyone to talk to or turn to when they're experiencing this kind of abuse. They feel very isolated. And a lot of our clients have children, right? This is their parent. They're parenting together. So they're in a home. They have a home. They have developed a home with these individuals. And to leave that home means that their children are going to have to be uprooted from that home. And a lot of times we hear clients say that he or she is an amazing parent, but they're an awful partner. So they try to figure out what's the best. What should they do at that point? Should they just leave and have to do this on their own as far as parenting? Or should they stay and endure the abuse, even though that the other partner is a really good parent, you know, sometimes they're a great parent or they have the capability of being a great parent. Sometimes they actually are afraid to leave because they've been threatened and they've been told that they will do something drastic to that victim if they leave, whether it's take their children. We've heard them say that they would kill their children, that they would kill themselves, they would kill the pets. There are lots of different reasons why victims might choose to stay at least initially. Like you said, it takes them a few times before they leave for good. Mm -hmm. And victims a lot of times don't even define what they're going through as abuse. Sometimes they don't even see it as abuse to begin with, especially with sexual assault. They don't see that as actual abuse or they don't feel as though that's something that they should report. When we train our sexual assault prevention response folks, We talk about the fact that the clients we work with, a lot of times it's physical. When they come into our program, it's about something has happened where law enforcement has been involved and it's a physical incident or maybe an extreme emotional incident. And then, oh, by the way, it's sexual as well, right? They're not worried about the sexual piece. They're worried about where they're going to stay tonight. They're worried about who's going to help them take care of their kids. You know, what's going to happen financially. They're worried about their family's overall well-being, not necessarily the acts of abuse. And so when we respond as victim advocates, we very much hone in on the fact that we understand that. Here's what we're concerned about. Here's what we know of in regards to this type of abuse. Can we develop a safety plan around that? If you want to stay in your relationship, that's absolutely your right. We call this the right of self-determination. Clients have the right to determine what's going to happen in their world. And so we are there to make sure that they know the risks behind that and that we're concerned about their safety and then safety plan around all of what they choose. Could you talk a little bit about the power and control cycle? Yeah. So the cycle of power and control is very much an educational tool that we use with a lot of the clients that we speak to. And so the cycle of power and control was developed to teach 
victims of domestic abuse to show them that there's a cycle that can keep going. And there's this spectrum that what we just talked about before from beginning to end. And a lot of times the cycle to include the spectrum of different types of abuse includes different phases, obviously. And there's this honeymoon phase, there's the actual battering phase. And then there's this phase of where you're just kind of like on eggshells. It's like a phase that's building up. It's like a tension building phase. So you start with the honeymoon phase and everything is lovely. And then it starts to become more controlling in the kind of tension building phase. And then there's a incident. There's some sort of a physical incident of some sort of violence or something. Then the couple splits. And that cycle can go on many, many times in a year's period, or it could just be over one long year's period. Every couple is different. Every situation is different. But we do see these kind of, you know, they get together, everything's lovely, things start getting a little tense, there's some controlling behaviors, and then there's an incident, and then there's remorse, and more honeymoon, and flowers, and I'm sorry's, and hope, Mm -hmm. and then the cycle begins again. And that's where a lot of our clients stick to, is the honeymoon phase. You know, that's where, when folks ask the question of why don't you leave, well, there you go. It's because of the honeymoon phase of I'm sorry, this isn't going to happen again. Or maybe if we can do something different or because you were doing this or that, you know, that's where the honeymoon phase comes in. And that's where a lot of our clients are stuck at. They're wanting that phase because that phase is the phase that brings the most bliss. The shortest phase, obviously, is the battering phase where it's the emotional, physical or sexual abuse or violence that occurs. And then, you know, the tension building phase, like Pam just indicated, it can last for a short amount of time or for years. I mean, I've had clients where I've worked with where that tension building phase lasts for a very long time. And do you have any suggestions on how to spot an abusive partner? Well, we've talked about them already a lot, Anya, but I would say One of the things I talk about is a victim will say to me, well, he really loves me or she really loves me. She calls me at least 45 times a day and I get at least 100 texts a day. They just can't bear to be away from me. And I'm like, honey, that's not love. You know, that's control. That's weird. That's not okay. That's not what people should be doing or should need to do. They also closely monitor where the partner goes. They want to know every person that the partner interacts with. They become upset if the partner wants to go out with friends or go visit family. They try to control access to money. You know, they're looking at the telephone bills and looking at the phone to see who they're texting with, like a failure to trust, which then leads to these accusations of infidelity that are baseless. And the victim is like, where'd that come from? What are you, you know, I'm not doing anything. They engage with their partner at the partner's workplace. They try to pick a fight, get an argument, which you know, when they threaten that partner's job, they threaten that partner's income, then that limits that partner's ability to leave. In same gender couples, we see where they'll threaten to out their partner to their workplace or to family. And they also threaten, like we've talked about already, to hurt themselves or to hurt the partner. 
if the partner was to try to leave. Those are all really great indicators that you might not be in a healthy relationship. Whenever you have clients who try to seek help, whether it's victims of domestic violence or maybe perpetrators, I don't know if that happens very often that perpetrators seek help on their own accord, but maybe sometimes it does. How does seeking help through family advocacy program impacts one's career? We really like to say it's not a career ender. You know, we we really like to say if we can intervene early before you commit a felony, you know, we really can't do anything. If you commit a felony, we're going to be able to be supportive and we can, you know, do treatment, but you still committed a felony and it's up to the law enforcement side of the house about what happens. But if we can intervene early, when we see these signs that we've been talking about in this podcast, and we can help folks understand a better way of interacting, change their belief systems, we believe very strongly that we've saved a lot more careers because they were willing to come in and learn some skills and change their behavior. But again, if it goes too long and they get wrapped up in the criminal justice system, Family advocacy has a really hard time mm-hmm. impacting the career at that point. We can't save the career if, if, if you're going to jail. This is where our restricted reporting comes into play as well. Some of our victims choose restricted reporting to try to get the help and assistance they need and create a space where they can make some decisions for themselves because they're concerned about career impact on their abuser. But by far, most victims choose the unrestricted reporting options and We engage all the resources that we have available to us to help this family get back on track. And so we do have a lot of happy endings. I can tell you, we've got a lot of good stories out of our family advocacy program. And that's for perpetrators or for victims of both? For both. We talked about the potential descriptors or characteristics of an abusive partner. What about a victim? What are characteristics of populations that are mostly susceptible to domestic violence and child abuse? For victim populations, all of our populations, we look at these characteristics and we term them as risk factors, right? So we look at, they're not causes of domestic violence, but they increase the likelihood, you know, they're risk factors that could increase the likelihood of maltreatment based on our research and based on some of the things that we have seen in our fatality review board and our civilian agencies and whatnot. And I don't know about victims because we don't ever tell a victim that they're the cause of anything. We don't use that term as far as victims being a risk factor, what they're going through or what their characteristics are. We don't usually use that as a cause or a risk factor or identify them as a risk factor. But as far as psychosocial stressors in families and in relationships, those are things that we do talk to victims about. As victim advocates and as family advocacy clinicians, we talk to clients about, you know, here's some of the things that we want to ask questions about. Are there some significant financial stressors going on in your life or in your family? Are there some things where you're feeling overwhelmed as far as situations, stressors? Are you a single parent? Are you enduring any kind of long deployments or lots of TDYs? You know, 
Those are stressors, psychosocial stressors that we have identified as not causes of domestic abuse or child maltreatment, but adding them all up could increase the likelihood of potential domestic abuse or stress, right? In the relationship or in the family. Or child abuse. Right. Increased stress on the family is going to increase the likelihood of abuse happening in the family, period. And so the psychosocial stressors that Deidre talked about are real. I mean, people know when they move, that moving is stressful. They know when they get married, that that new change, when they have a new baby, that that's stressful. They know there's a lot of jobs in the Air Force that can be very stressful. So job stress sometimes kind of uh, overflows into family life. Recent death or a serious illness of a family member. So all of those things are going to raise the risk of abuse in families. What I'd really like to make sure we covered today, Anya, is the really scary cases, you know, the, mm-hmm. the really scary risk factors, the ones that people need to say, you know, if I can leave you with this list today, I think we will have made a huge impact with these Absolutely. things are happening to you and your family. You need to seek help, whether you go on base or off base, victim advocate or family advocacy clinician, somebody you need to reach out. And that is a strangulation. Attempted strangulation is a huge risk factor for a lethal outcome. And it's typically a male on female perpetration. We have seen female on female and a few female on male, but typically attempted strangulation is a male on female issue. And once he puts his hands around her neck the very first time, she's 800% more likely to die from his hands because of that, because he was once willing to put his hands around her throat. Stalking, we talked about stalking, especially now they stalk in the cyber world versus following somebody around. They literally track them on a GPS. Threats to kill. Threats to kill are very potent risk factors. It's not normal for you to tell your partner, if you leave me, I'm going to kill you. Or if you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. Or if you leave me, I'm going to kill our kids. Almost every DV fatality that we've reviewed in the last 15 years, that victim was told by that offender, if you leave me, I'm going to kill you, myself, or our kids. I just want to kind of think through the scenario. Whenever a victim in a situation like that and the partner tells her, threatens that he or she will, will harm himself, herself, or the kids, the victim is not in position to call the police and say, I got this threat. I imagine the police doesn't really do anything in those cases. Is that true? Threats to kill is a crime that I think it's going to depend on several different things. I would say you should seek victim advocacy services if you're in a situation like that. And that way we can take a look at everything that's going on and advise you. And of course, in the Air Force, if it's an unrestricted report, we're going to call law enforcement anyway. In fact, when you're strangled, you could die up to 21 days. 21 days later. Yeah. And the other thing that victims also need to know is a really high risk time is when the victim says, you know what, I want a divorce or actually moves out of the shared residence or when the divorce is final, three really high risk times for a victim to be killed by their partner. And oh, by the way, what we've seen in the Air Force is 
by far the weapon of choice is a firearm. And about 25% of our victims of lethal domestic violence are men. So don't leave here thinking that men are the only ones that are abusers, even in the lethality. So about 30% in our database of total domestic abuse victims, about 30% are men and about 25% of our lethal domestic violence are men. So it's going both ways. It's more common for a woman to be abused by the man or at least be injured by the man because obviously he's stronger. But those are kind of the way our data is looking. That's a database of 15 years for lethality and over 30 years for domestic abuse. We also know that substance abuse increases risk of lethality. So, you know, if you pour alcohol on a bad situation, it makes it worse. And we typically see those scenarios where they've had some sort of an argument. It's usually a, a jealous argument. They're both drinking and then somebody gets impulsive because they have a loaded firearm in their house, in their closet, in their nightstand, on top of their refrigerator, in their kitchen drawer. And they're impulsive, they're drinking, they're angry, and they shoot their partner. And then about 40% of the time, they turn the gun on themselves when that happens. Hmm. Another lethality risk factor is infidelity. I mean, you don't actually have to be having an affair. Your abuser just has to believe that you're having an affair to kill you. Another one is sexual assault. And this is another typically male and female, but not always, situation is when a man rapes his wife or partner, that is a scary person because that is not about sex. That's about dominance. And it is normally accompanied by a lot of other types of domestically abusive behaviors, emotionally as well as physically abusive behaviors. And also pregnancy. Homicide is a leading manner of death for pregnant women. Wow. Yes. Yes, it is. We can speculate about why that is, but typically in an abusive relationship, everything is kind of centered around the abuser. He's the center of her world. When she becomes pregnant, Mm -hmm. the focus shifts to her and the baby. And for some reason, that seems to create a, a lot of resentment. And so we always ask in our assessments, if this woman has children or is pregnant currently, ever any physical abuse during pregnancy because they're known to attempt to strangle or also to kick the stomach and punch the stomach. Those are behaviors that we always ask about, even if the woman is not currently pregnant, but has children in the past. For those individuals who are struggling with domestic violence situation, I recognize that some of them may not even be aware that it is an emotionally or physically or sexually abusive relationship, right? Because it's simply their baseline. Maybe they've grown up in that kind of environment and they don't think of their situation as dangerous or abusive. But for those people who do recognize that they're in a bad circumstance and it's an abusive relationship or an abusive situation, what kinds of things do you recommend? You listed some of the risk factors like loaded weapons or pregnancy or isolation from family? What can they do in those situations to help themselves? My recommendation would be to seek out a victim advocate. Those folks are our frontline people. If you are talking to a medical provider, if you're talking to anyone in the MTF, most of the first responder agencies, the security forces, the commanders, OSI, legal, 
even the child and youth programs know about the Family Advocacy Office and know how to reach out to a victim advocate. Most installations have Family Advocacy 24-hour response uh, phone call information where they can reach a victim advocate or somebody in the Family Advocacy Office. So I would say reach out and just ask questions, you know, reach out and talk to someone. I concur with what Pam just said. Reach out and speak to a family advocacy or an agency that can assist in these kinds of things. If you are someone who is afraid of having the military involved in your situation and you would like to do a restricted report, you know, obviously contact family advocacy first to see if you qualify for a restricted report. Those are things that as soon as possible, you know, based on your situation, we're going to explain the process and your right to understand all of this. We're going to explain what it is that you are able to qualify for, what you might be eligible for, and we're going to connect you to the right folks as victim advocates. We call ourselves the first responders for family advocacy. If you're worried about what's happening, if you're worried about your career or your relationship, your family, you know, you can contact the nearest family advocacy program. We'll share with them what their options are and all the resources available. Having a program like this that's Air Force wide and that's available for beneficiaries, for dependents, for active duty, for the activated guard reserve, it is really an incredible resource. I can tell you. A long time ago, seems like a lifetime ago, I was married and I had all the risk factors. You know, we talk about populations who potentially are more susceptible to domestic abuse or abusive situations. I checked all the boxes. I was an immigrant. I didn't have a green card, which also didn't allow me to work. I think I had the driver's license at the time, but I really didn't speak very good English. I didn't have any family. All my family still is in Russia. And I didn't have the proper documents. I didn't have health care insurance. And I was married to somebody who happened to be abusive. So I was 20 at the time, kind of disconnected from my network, my support network. And I called the cops one time because my husband pinned me to the wall and kind of shoved me to the wall and held me and then spat on my face. And I remember this very clearly and he was intoxicated. And we also had loaded weapons, right? When we talk about all the risk factors there. And of course, at the time, you know, this wasn't the person that I married. This was somebody who I was discovering, you know, kind of was another side of this individual. And when I called the police, they came over and they said, well, it looks like your husband has red marks on his face and he simply was drinking, I think. And while I was on the street by myself and it was, you know, one o'clock at night and I was just walking in the street, they didn't offer me any safety, any shelter. And, you know, then the situation had to escalate because I had to come back to the house. And so not having any kind of support or not having any resources was just dangerous. And thankfully, that situation is way behind me. But I imagine there's so many women or men and that are currently in similar circumstances. And so having that resource, having the knowledge that police isn't the only resource you can use, you you can call other support services that I really didn't have any knowledge of. And I wasn't qualified because I wasn't a citizen, right? I didn't have any documents. I feel obviously passionate about this topic and 
I'm really grateful that resources like you exist and that you help victims. And I love the fact that you shared that, ma'am. That right there shows the essence of our program and kind of what we're about because we understand there's a training that I provide all of our victim advocates is called advocacy beyond leaving. And we understand the fact that the people that we interact with have issues, have stressors on top of stressor, on top of stressor. And like I mentioned earlier, they don't want their relationships to end. They want the abuse to end. And family advocacy, which is why I love being a part of this program, is that that's what we do. We capture the real issue and provide support to our families and hit the area of working with offenders, what we call abusers or offenders, to get them the help that they need because that's the way we can end abuse. And then we support victims on the other end. I mean, it's like the full spectrum here. And that's something that I love about our family advocacy program is we're not about separating people and ending families. Obviously, if that's what that family is wanting, then that's one thing. But we always go off of what exactly it is that that family is needing. I will say this. We do have a program for adult males who have met criteria, a case of partner abuse. And we have another separate program for adult females because it's often very different kinds of issues that lead these folks to this behavior. So we have change step that we do for men. It's a men's group. And we have VISTA, which is a group for women who use violence in their relationships with their partners or their children. And I'm going to tell you, I'm really proud of these programs. Our, our clinicians have really embraced them and I have been seeing amazing results with folks who are willing to come in and complete the treatment course, which is about 20 weeks of counseling. But when they do commit to that full range of sessions, we're seeing them save marriages. We're seeing them save military careers and just really having a much higher quality of life. So I just had to put that plug in there. Definitely. And I've definitely seen those programs change people's lives in positive directions. I'd like to shift gears a little bit more, but I really want to get into pandemic and governments worldwide have imposed lockdowns to contain the coronavirus, but those same restrictions may have increased the risks associated with domestic violence. How have lockdowns influenced rates of domestic violence? What have you seen? In terms of prevalence, we're not going to be able to speak to prevalence because we don't know what we don't know. We do know that our referrals are down 40%. For this whole duration, from the middle of March, when things began to lock down to present, we're getting about 40% fewer maltreatment referrals for both partner abuse and child abuse than we were for the same weeks in the five years prior. So we've really been tracking it. Now, we expected that they would begin to come back up as people began to open back up. But we haven't really seen a big change in that. Now, when we are getting our referrals, anecdotally, I can tell you because I talk to a lot of people every day about these referrals that they're getting, they're seeing a higher acuity. What has happened with the pandemic, it has interrupted our ability to monitor 
for victims and for safety. So all of our mandated reporters, school teachers, medical providers, law enforcement, coaches, mental health professionals, daycare ladies, all of these people who are looking at children and looking at adult potential victims every day in their interactions has been cut dramatically as we all stay at home. So I think that that's happening. I also think that as Deidre anecdotally has heard from her victim advocates, there's a slight uptick in calls to our victim hotlines. But the most dramatic thing that she's noticed is the duration of the calls. So while we're before the duration of the calls might have been four or five, maybe eight minutes, they're almost doubled now when they're calling. And I think that a lot of times those calls are not necessarily new referrals, but current victims who are experiencing some distress need somebody to talk to. So yes, this is a very strange time. And I've been working for Air Force Family Advocacy for 32 years. And never did I ever even imagine, I guess that might have been naive of me, but never did I ever even imagine a lockdown like this that would put our clients in such increased danger. Because we know from our research that the longer the abuser and the victim spend together, the more time they spend together, the incidence of abuse go up. Okay. And we know that because what we did is we looked at our referrals over time. And we see that on holidays, when families are together, our abuse rates, our referrals go up. And especially on the drinking holidays. So Mm -hmm. New Year's Day, Rick's Day, 4th of July, on all of these Christmas, Thanksgiving, obviously, because people are spending more time together, and they've introduced some alcohol. And so this is kind of that kind of a phenomenon. This is what it makes me think of. And we've also heard from anecdotally from our clinicians that more of these incidents that are coming to their attention, perhaps the ones they're taking to the high risk for violence response team are involving alcohol. So I think that people may be drinking more during this pandemic. I'm not sure, but these are just some of the preliminary things that we're seeing. What do you do when you experience difficult times? What provides you emotional groundness to be able to listen to thousands of real stories and hold the stories, help others continue to serve? How do you do this job? I'm not going to have a really profound answer on you other than I honestly think this work is more of a calling Mm -hmm. than anything. I knew from an early age that I wanted to be a counselor. I wanted to be a therapist. But then just by happenstance, I stumbled across a child abuse intervention program when I was in my undergraduate studies and I got involved. And the thing that I think is really helpful here is that domestic abuse, we don't often really have to diagnose them with a mental illness. They are having what we call V codes. You know, they're having a parent child problem. They're having a couple's conflict. They're having a behavior issue. They're having anger management issues self-esteem issues, all of those things are treatable. You know, this is not like chronic mental illness where people don't really get better. You just teach them how to cope with their activities of daily living. These people actually really can get better if they don't have an access to personality disorder. If they're committed, they're going to get better and do better and have much better relationships. So I think that's one reason why we don't get burned out because we really do see people 
changing and people getting better and violence and abuse going down. And we may never eliminate it in the population, but we have certainly eliminated it in many relationships over time. Deidre, you always like to talk about this is the victim's journey. Go ahead and tell them this is another perspective that helps us keep from getting burned out. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I always say is that what I love about our job is that we're consultants to the people who are doing the really hard work. And that's all of our social workers and advocates in the field. And we are here to be their sounding board. And we're here to make sure that they have a backup. Pam and I, as well as our colonel and our other directors at the Air Force AFMRA, we are here to be their support, the folks in our field, because they're the ones doing the really hard work. So I always tell our victim advocates that I am your personal consultant. I'm here to provide you with consultation, training, chocolate, whatever you need to make sure that you can provide quality services because this is a hard job. And then Pam and I, and Pam, I just want to put this out there that we, our headquarters level, we have developed kind of a unique system to where we rely on each other, right? To where we are able to process stuff together because we do hear about the hard stuff and we hear it every single day, day in and day out, whether it's fatalities or really tough cases. Pam and I are here listening to this to help our people in the field to move through it. That's right. And we tell them this outcome is not your outcome. All you can do is you can support this victim, give this victim options, educate this victim, but this is the victim's journey. It's not your journey. It's their story. They're writing it for themselves. So we are not connected to the outcome. That's their choice. What we're doing is we're helping them make their own decisions and hopefully making good decisions, but educated decisions, informed decisions. That's right. right. Yourself from that outcome. We've lost a few victim advocates Mm -hmm. and and clinicians in our years who just said, I can't do this anymore. I can't take this anymore. I think one of those scenarios is that they get too tied up in the the outcome. outcome. We talk about do not connect yourself to the outcome of any individual, whether it's good or bad. You are sitting on the side of them, providing them information and resources, and you let them. That's the whole process of empowerment and informed consent Yep, and self-determination. That's the whole process. You let them make the decisions for what they want to make, whatever that is. And sometimes it's not a good decision. You know, sometimes it's just not. It's not the good decision from where we see it, right? Yes. It's not a good decision from where we are sitting, but we have given them the information and the resources for them to make an informed decision. That's the part that I tell the advocates, make sure you can sit, rest at night knowing that you have given enough information and resources for someone to make an informed decision. And whatever that decision is, is their decision to make. Thank you so much for this. And I definitely admire you for doing this hard work and all family advocacy program workers out there who support the program. It's an amazing, amazing 
contribution to all of our safety and prevention. If somebody who is needing help right now and they are listening to this podcast, what could they do to reach out? You mentioned the hotline, you mentioned Family Advocacy Davas. What would be their quickest or best resources? My suggestion is for them to contact their nearest family advocacy program. And if they are not able to find that, if you're listening to this right now and you're able to get Google Military One Source, get on there and find your nearest family advocacy program or contact Military One Source so they can connect you to the nearest family advocacy program or contact your nearest domestic violence agency in your local community. And if you're not able to find that, contact your law enforcement agency. If it's severe enough, contact law enforcement so that you can get to the right individuals. I don't ever want to say don't contact law enforcement because that's actually one of our coordinate community response. They're part of our team. You can always call the National DV Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. And they will also be able to put you in touch with Air Force or any DOD, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, family advocacy folks. Thank you so much for this information. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that I didn't ask you today? No, ma'am, I just really appreciate you giving us the opportunity to highlight this issue and the work that we do. It's so important for our military families to know that we're here for them. And thanks again. Thank you so much for letting us be a part of this podcast. And we are absolutely dedicated to all of our military members, family members, intimate partners of military members. We are here to support, period. And we don't turn down anyone. And our folks in the field are the best of the best. They really are. And so please, You guys let us know if there's anything that you need. We are here to provide support. Awesome. Thank you so much for this interview. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and grit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail. Mill. It's A-N-N-A dot V dot F-E-D-O-T-O-V-A dot mill at mail 